Hello, everyone, and welcome to Waltrip Unfiltered. We have a great show for you today. My friend, my colleague, Larry McReynolds, America's crew chief, is going to join us, and we're going to talk about his journey from Alabama to the big time of NASCAR racing. And now his tenure at Fox. Man, he is a dedicated, hardworking individual. We're going to listen to all his stories, and I can't wait to share those with you. Plus, we're going to break down our picks to win the championship down in Homestead, Miami. Be sure to stay tuned. Be ready. Green play, green play. It's Waltrip Unfiltered. My special guest today is America's crew chief, Larry McReynolds. Larry, how are you? I'm doing great, and I'm even more excited that you have finally asked me to come in here and <laughs> chat with you. I'll tell you what I've been doing. I've been keeping you in my pocket because I know <laughs> that when the, when the season winds down and there's stats and 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 things to break down and and trends, I need you here. I need you here to talk to walk me through this championship battle in Miami this weekend. All right, well, we'll we'll do our best. We'll yeah. do our best. How does that make you feel being called? And it's it's not like just a nickname. People believe this. America's crew chief, and you've trans transitioned from being a crew chief. Eighteen years later, you're 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 a TV guy, but but people still think of you as America's crew chief. Well, I mean, it's very flattering, and I you know I I didn't give myself that nickname. Adam Alexander, I think, is the first one that tagged it, and when he first said it, I went, "Where did that come from?" But it was one of those deals that it just kind of stuck, but. But it, it is very flattering, Michael, because, you know, making the transition from 2000 to 2001, from the pit box to the broadcast booth, A, the decision was one of the toughest I've ever had to make in my life. It was a decision that Linda and I, my wife, we, we toiled over for several months. Uh, but I do feel like that I do go in the broadcast booth or I go in the studio, and even though I'm not a crew chief anymore, for a team or a car, I almost feel like sometimes I'm crew chief for all the teams. I can kind of break down why he did this, why they did this. So, you know, it is a flattering title. It's not one that I was out searching for. But I do feel like a lot of times, especially on race day, I'm kind of crew chiefing all 38 or 40 cars. I just don't have to take the bad uh, the heat for a bad call on Monday. You know what I learned as a as a broadcaster and analyst in the booth is is – I never would say, I mean, I have I have said it, and this is how I learned. You don't say, they got a pit. They got a pit. You say, if I was them, I would pit. Yes. You know, you got to qualify it because you, you like you said, you're you're basically analyzing what every car on that yes. track might do. And, and, and your opinion of if a guy should get two tires or get four, with as much as you know about the sport and as closely as you follow it, I mean – if I'm a crew chief and I hear what Larry thinks, I'm going to consider it. Well, and, and one thing I have tried hard to do, Michael, in 19 years of doing the, the crew chief analyst, it, it's probably come out a few times that I did say it, but I've tried to stay away from saying that's a bad call. Yeah. Uh, I try to just say here could be the consequences from this call. Now, there probably has been a few times. I remember Matt Borland Left Ryan Newman out one time at Darlington a number of years ago, and I went, that's a bad call. You, you just know some of them, <laughs> all right? That's not good. So, But, you know, people second-guessed me for 18 years when I was a crew chief, so I try not to second-guess these guys. But here's the funny thing, and I even told one of our bo bosses at Fox this a couple of years ago. 
There's no way I could go back and be a crew chief anymore. I mean, I've been removed for 19 years. Even though I've tried to stay engaged and on top of rules and technology, it just, there's no way to go back. Now, I will say this. I feel like I could almost go on top of the pit box and call a race today better than when I was a crew chief just because of everything I've observed and watched. I'm not so sure if I did that, I wouldn't want to do it from the top of the grandstand mm-hmm. instead of standing down there on that pit box because you see so much more up there on, in that broadcast booth. Well, tell me, let's go back to 2000, which was your last last race as a crew chief, and fast forward to Sunday, uh, Chris Gabehart having to make that call after that caution late in the race uh, that came out. I mean, they were set on cruise and were, 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 were heading home to be a part of the championship four and win the race. The caution flies. Uh, you, you, let's, let's take Larry from 2000 and, and send him to be setting beside Gabe Hart. How do you make that call to get two tires? And, and, and do you think that there was a – a connection between the Gibbs cars say, Denny, you get two, we'll get four. That'll put you out front. Or do you think it was just strictly, we're going to get four and we're going to beat your ass or, or how do you see all that? I'm, I know Blaney was in the mix yeah. as well. How do you see all that? Yeah, there was a lot of layers there because there were seven cars on the lead lap. Uh, Eric Jones got the free pass, but still he couldn't pit to the second go around. So really it was, it was Chris Gabe Hart versus the call of six other crew chiefs. And I just I felt like Chris wanted to do four tires, but he wanted to keep control of that race. And the way you keep control of that race right there is you win the battle off pit road. And I just felt like that Chris knew there was going to be if everybody changed four tires. We I, honestly, I was a little surprised there was more of those six that than just the two yeah. that did the two tires. But I think Chris just wanted to keep control of that race. And the way you do that is you win the battle off pit road because we saw whatever line you started in was so critical. That inside line was horrible on restart. So the way you control it. But I, that's been the thing that I've been the most impressed with Chris Gabehart. He is a rookie Cup crew chief. Can you believe that, to it, say that? But to, to know the races they've won, and he's like Cool Hand Luke. He 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 beats Denny right back into place the minute Denny goes astray, and he made that call as good as if he'd have been a 10- or 12-year vet, veteran sitting on top of that pit box. I mean, to, to, to grade him A-plus for Gabe Hart in 2019. Absolutely. I, I mean, he probably went to Daytona, win the Daytona 500, and went, wow, this stuff's pretty easy. <laughs> well, then he, the next to the last race of the year, he makes a big call late in the race and says, I got him again. And, and wouldn't be a bit surprised if it's not going to take the right call come Sunday down in Miami to win this thing well we talked about last time on the pit box in 2000 take the listeners through the tools that you had in 2000 uh on the pit box with your engineers versus what these guys you know sometimes more information can be confusing explain to the listeners how much you had to work with in 2000 to make those calls and what these guys today have. Well, first and foremost, you used the word engineer. I did not have an engineer on the pit box even in 2000. 99-2000, RCR was starting their engineering department, but it had nothing to do 
with with pit strategy or, or programs to figure fuel mileage. They were simply starting to work on stuff with the chassis and with the aero side of things. Uh, it was me and David Smith sitting up on that pit box. David would kind of help me figure fuel mileage. But, you know, 2000 probably wasn't a whole lot different than my first year as a crew chief in 1985 or 86. 90% of the calls I made was seat of the pants. Yeah, I would sit up there with a little calculator, and I would try to do fuel mileage. Now they've got programs that tells them that they're going to run out in turn three with two laps to go. You know, I could maybe give you a window of four or five laps if we were cutting it close on fuel. Uh, but, yeah, it was seat of the pants, a pencil, and a, and a piece of paper, and a calculator, even up to that final race at Atlanta in 2000. Well, when I, I showed up in 85, ran my first few races uh, in, in 85, ran for Rookie of the Year in 86, and your your career is, is basically the same. That's mm-hmm. when you started. Uh, uh, talk about how from Birmingham, Alabama, how did you wind up a, a crew chief in yeah. NASCAR in 85? It's a very interesting story, Michael, and I'll try to give you the abbreviated version. You know, I didn't come from any racing background whatsoever. I was the only child. My mom and dad had no interest whatsoever in racing. But my grandfather, my mom's dad, and my mom's sister, my aunt, which was more like a sister to me because she was only 10 years older than I was, every Friday night, it was walking distance down to the local BIR, Birmingham International Raceway. Every Friday night, my grandfather, my aunt, myself would go down there and watch the races. And even they ran a couple of cup races there. I remember a 200-lapper somewhere in the 60s. I was just a little guy. Uh, Richard Petty won the race. But I raced it, there in 84, by the way, in the Dash Series. The Dash Series went to BIR. BIR. Tough little racetrack. It was. Tough it's little like racetrack. Just flat as Bowman oh, Gray. Oh, I'm telling you, the two ends were so different. But then my aunt ended up getting married, and her husband was a mechanic, but he was a race fan, so then the four of us would go every Friday night. How old were you? I was probably, gosh, by the time that she got married, um, I was probably in late grade school, maybe getting close. So I was maybe 13, 14 years old. So it was, it, I was already in high school, and they started, it would have been like the mid-70s, 74, 75. They started a brand new division called a street stock hobby division. It was as stock a race car as you could build. You took the seats out, the windows out, you put a few roll bars in it, you put the fuel tank up in the trunk, put a number on the side, you had a street stock hobby. Well, my aunt was a little bit of a hot rodder. So I think... She was serious, but her husband didn't take her serious. That night they started it. They only had two cars the first night. She says, I'd like to do that, and I could do it. He said, hmm, go out and get you some sponsors, and we'll build you a car. Well, she called his bluff. She went out and rounded out more sponsors, and you could almost fit on the car, I'm sure, because of being a female. And so my little racing career started right there in their basement building this car. So, as you know, Michael, racing is a disease. It gets in your bloodstream, and there's no getting it out. And, and she did not have a lot of success, and I moved on to uh, a, a late model guy that, that ran there in Birmingham. In fact, he had Dave Mater III that drove for him, Mike Alexander. But I just had reached a point. I was out of high school. I was working in a junkyard, and my normal week would be, Work at that junkyard all day long, which is probably one of the hottest places there is in the summer and the coldest places there is in the winter. I'd work all day at that junkyard, 
run through a drive-through, go out to the shop there where we worked on the late model many nights many nights worked all night long quit just in time enough to run home take a shower and get back to that junkyard i weighed about 150 pounds and i said you know my body can't do this i think i can but i can't keep this up it's amazing how timing works out working at the junkyard i'd worked my way into where i was working the counter And periodically, I'd have to go out back and check a part or something. And we had this one guy, he he drove the forklift, and he always would pull the forklift, and I stayed on him all the time, lower the forks on the ground. Somebody's going to bust their head wide open. Well, this particular day, it's 1980, uh, summer, I bailed out that back door to go check something. I centered one of those forks. And I was down and out for about two weeks, and I'm sitting at home, had, you know, Tons wow. of stitches. I'm sitting at home, again, timing in our sport is everything. I'm sitting at home. I've watched every soap opera you can watch. I've read every magazine you can read. Well, NASCAR used to put out a newsletter, and on the back of the newsletter was classifieds, people selling trucks, cars, engines, parts. Well, I was reading it, and at the very bottom, new Winston Cup race team starting Greenville, South Carolina, looking for mechanics and fabricators with a phone number. I gave it a call, spoke to a woman. It was actually the guy that was going to start the team. It was his daughter who was putting it all together. Bob Rogers was the guy. Number 37. 37, Rogers Leasing, and her daughter was Dana Williamson. And so I called her, and we chatted, and she kind of knew of me because we had raced against her dad's team in late models. But I figured, Michael, I'm one of 10,000 people that's called them. This is just, but you know, I tried. So I healed up. I go back to work, and I got home. We didn't have cell phones back then, obviously. I got home one afternoon, and my mom said, Larry, there's a Dana Williamson that called you today. She said, I don't know where this area code's from. And I went, oh, I know where it's from. And so, lo and behold, this was late July, and she said, you know, they kind of knew of me. And uh, they wanted me to come up, and they were going to run a few races the end of 80 and then the full 81 season, come up, work a few weeks, see if I like them, see if they like me. And so Labor Day of 1980, I moved up there, and uh, within a few weeks they said, man, we we love what you're doing. We'd love for you to stay. And, you know, when I came back home, Michael, and and loaded my stuff up to take it back to the Carolinas. I had a, a 1971 green Pinto. Now, when I say green, capitalize every letter in green. When I hooked the U-Haul behind it, it started dragging the rear bumper before <laughs> I even put anything in it. But my mom and dad looked at me and said, this is the stupidest, craziest thing we've ever seen. You'll be back in six months. You'll be broke. You'll be hungry. We'll feed you, but we're not bailing you out. And as much as I always respected what my mom and dad said, I said, you guys are probably right, but I've got to go try this. I want to see if I can make this work. I remember when I left home, it's funny you say that, mom and dad said, you'll be back. And I said, no, I won't. (laughs) And that was, there was so many moments in my life that were inspirational. And you remember them, and you don't know why they, they sort of sink in. But you'll be back really, really really inspired me to say I, I won't be back and I have one question about 
the guy with the forklift that knocked you out. <laughs> I know when you were a kid, you were a hothead and a wild ass. Did you, when you recovered, did you beat him up? No, I, I didn't. But <laughs> but I think when I finally wandered back to the junkyard with bandage about that thick on my head, I said, see what I've been trying to tell you all wow. this time? I said, this is why you lower the forks down. Just one other thing back to my mom and dad, Michael. They still were very anti, even after I went up there, even after I got the job. But I will say this, when when my dad passed away in February of 1990 and my mom passed away in June of 95, there were no two bigger NASCAR Larry McReynolds fans walking the face of the earth. They, they really had embraced what I had done, and, and what then eventually I was able to accomplish. That red 37, as I remember it, mm-hmm. uh, with Mike Alexander behind the wheel, who else drove it? Well, it was all being built around a local racer by the name of Don Sprouse. Don had driven their late model car. I think car, I raced dash cars against Probably. Yeah. And that didn't make it but about two races. Yeah. And people kind of thought the reason Mike started driving the car, I think Rockingham, the third race of the year, was his first race people linked it to me i had nothing to do with it i didn't go up there and tell them what driver they needed to hire but but it was very cool to know that the guy i'd been in birmingham working with and had won some races mike alexander now i've got somebody i i I was scared to death i'm i'm in greenville south carolina i don't know anybody i'm 21 years old what's your role I'm just, we only had three full-time employees. My role was everything. But Raymond Kelly was our crew chief, and it was just myself, Raymond, and a guy by the name of Bill Miller. And that was all we had, three people. And as I remember back, the 37 had some good runs once Mike got going. We we did, but when that car really got turned around, nothing against Don Sprouse, not even anything against Mike Alexander. But they fired Mike right near the end of the summer with about 10 or 11 races to go. Uh, they'd been on him about tearing cars up, and it's almost like he was trying to overextend the equipment, Mm -hmm. and they fired him. And Dana Williamson, Bob's daughter, had become pretty good friends with some people that were handling Tim Richmond. Well, Tim Richmond was driving the 99 Uno car, Mm -hmm. and things Things had got sideways with with that whole deal. So Richmond came and ran that 37 car, the last nine or ten races, and oh my gosh. I mean, our equipment wasn't even close to this guy's ability. But the coolest thing is the uh, 500 at Charlotte in the fall. We were leading that race, and we didn't have to make no more pit stops. And then things cycled through, and we're running third. But Kale and Bobby are running first and second. They've got to make another stop. So we're running third. We don't have to stop. They do. They eventually pitted, and we took the lead, and with about 20 laps to go, I don't know if I've ever seen an engine blow up so bad. It scattered from turn four to turn two. Tim got all that one, huh? Oh, my gosh. But, I mean, that to work with that guy, there's a lot of our new fans don't even know who Tim Richmond is. I'm telling you, most talented individual I think has ever walked the face of the earth. And this brings me to something that I want to celebrate. Larry McReynolds, Junkyard employee from Birmingham, Alabama, Tim Richmond, flamboyant, crazy guy. Uh, couldn't be two polar opposites. No. But in NASCAR, you know, you, you're you're a mechanic, and you say, ah, that's the guy I want ride, drive my car. He can really get it done. And, and the, the relationships that are formed and the bonds that you 
you you create because of just being good at what you do. You don't care what someone's skin color is. You don't care where they're from. You don't. You just want to. You want to watch that guy go. Oh, I'm. I, the, and, you know, of course, back then the last race of the year was Riverside, California, and again, our equipment could not keep up with that man. And he broke the shifter handle off. In fact, he, I can still see him coming up the front stretch and making that left hand or just past the the start finish line, holding a shifter <laughs> up in the air, shaking it like that. So we locked it in fourth gear, and he told Raymond, our crew chief, Raymond Kelly, I can't do this. It's bogging everywhere. Yeah. And Raymond said, look, we'll put it in third, but you've got to roll out down that long back yes. straightaway. And okay, okay, first lap. Pa, 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 pa. He just got against the limiter and just stayed in it. Yeah. And just what an amazing talent, though. Wow. I, I love the fact that I got to know him. And not only an amazing talent, just, I mean, obviously he had challenges, but just a great person. I mean, you want to go have a beer with Tim Richmond. Oh, no no question. And, you know, then spin it ahead when he started driving for Raymond Beadle for Blue Max. Uh, I was working for Mark Martin the end of 82, Mark's rookie season, and they were putting that Blue Max team together. And Tim got me to come over there, and mm-hmm. I went to work over there as the truck driver and a tire specialist, just another mechanic. And we got ready to go to Atlanta. And Tim says, I want to ride with you in the truck to Atlanta. Okay. Well, when I went to get in the truck, he was sitting behind the steering wheel. He drove us to Atlanta. And that was quite an experience, too, having Tim Richmond drive the hauler. And I'm sitting over there just hanging on for dear life. I remember in the 85, I was a rookie. I wasn't a rookie yet. My rookie season was 86, 85. I go to Darlington, and I'm going to run Darlington. And we used to get down there like on Thursday for the rookie thing mm-hmm. or whatever. But anyway, we got there on Tuesday for some reason. I think some PR stuff. And Tim was part of it. So it's like Michael uh, never even seen Darlington before and Tim Richmond. And he said, you want to you wanna have a beer after, uh, after we get done doing this? I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I put on my stupid probably Familari shoes and a, and a polo shirt or whatever a dumbass like me would wear. And he walked into the bar in some little tight pair of blue jeans, some alligator skin boots. He had on a button-up co- you know, button shirt with his collar all turned oh, up, yeah. his hair off. And I'm looking at myself like, how am I going to get any women? <laughs> Everybody's going to want to talk to Tim Richmond. And, and man, I'm, I'm thankful, like I said, I got to know him. Just a good guy. Great a guy. A down-to-earth good guy. And, and the ability behind the wheel, un, un second to anyone. Yeah, no question. So we go from... 81, getting this chance and working with Richmond. Uh, would you say the big break was was when Kenny Bernstein called you, or how'd that go down? Yeah, that was an interesting deal because I left Blue Max and I went back to Greenville, South Carolina. It's like I kept bouncing back and forth between Greenville and Charlotte. And so Bob Rogers, who had closed the doors halfway through uh, 1982, and that's when I went to work for Mark, and then I went to work for Blue Max, and in the beginnings of Blue Max was a challenge. You know, I, I love Raymond Beetle to death, but bills were not getting paid, paychecks were bouncing. It was just not a pretty sight, and I finally said, "No mas." And so Bob had called me. He wanted to try to build a late model car and run Butch Lindley some races. So I moved back to Greenville, South Carolina. Well, that didn't work out, and so Bobby Hawkins actually owned the car that David Pearson was driving. And this is about halfway through 83, and and I was out at the local short track there at Greenville Pickens, and he came out there and said, uh, gave me his business card and said, I hear you're right now looking for a job. And I said, yeah. And so I went and met with Bobby. And it was an interesting dynamic, Michael, because Bobby owned the team, 
But David actually had the sponsorship of Chattanooga Chew. And we operated out of the Pearson shop up there near Spartanburg. And I was the only one that worked in the shop, realistically, that wasn't named Pearson. It was David and the three boys and Larry Mack. And we only ran nine or ten races a year, but we did that. 83 and 84, and that was pretty cool, working did, with David Pearson. Did y'all win one? We didn't. We didn't. You know, David, David was on the on the backside of his career, and, and we top tens was, was big deals for us. Mm-hmm. But it was known for 1985 that, that David was going to run one more year. He wanted a little bit better effort, so he took the Chattanooga Chew sponsorship to Hall Sellington. Well, I had to move everything back. Again, I was the only one up there that wasn't named Pearson. I moved everything back to Traveler's Rest. And so got with Bobby. What do you want to do? And he said, well, why don't you hire somebody to help you? And what do you want to do? I said, well, i tell you what I'd really like to do. I'd love to build a double throwdown short track cup car. And let's get Butch Lindley to drive it. He said, let's do it. Let me back up. So the rules are the rules. And we all understand they were looser back then. You know, you could do some different things. But how did you know, how did your brain tell you there was a way to build a better short track car than than most people were building? How did you know that? Yeah, just from experience, a lot of my late model experience, you, you know, didn't do anything outside the rules as we built this car. Mike Laughlin, chassis builder, helped a lot with it. You know, whatever the specs was on whether it was size of bars, size of metal, that's the size we went with. And also height off the ground, anything you could do to Everything. make... Everything. We we did not build that car one iota thinking about durability. We thought about performance and speed. So we built this car, and this is kind of a sad story. The first race we're going to run is North Wilkesboro in the spring. So we get this car built. And again, this is going to be in 85, spring of 85. And I called Butch and I said, Butch, we were going to go test Wilkesboro. And I said, Butch, I, I need you to come by. We were doing it at Laughlin's down south of Greenville. I said, I need you to come by here. Let's get the pedals, the steering, all this stuff set. He said, well, this was like maybe a Wednesday. He said, listen, on Friday, Tanya and uh, Joan, his wife and his daughter, he said, the three of us are leaving to go to Bradenton, Florida. I'm going to run Frankie Grill's late model car down there at DeSoto Speedway this weekend. He said, I come right by there. Can I stop there then? I said, absolutely. So he stops by early Friday morning. We get him all fitted up, and, and we're going to go testing the early part of the next week. He went on to Bradenton driving. Uh, about 12 or 1 o'clock Saturday night, I got the phone call at home that he he broke a trailing arm and hit the wall with his head and was in a coma. And so out of respect to Butch, we did not go to Wilkesboro and even race. But here we got this brand new short track car here. So Bobby says, what do we want to do? And I said, I know Morgan Shepard doesn't have a ride. And I said, Martinsville, Morgan Shepard, that'll be good. So we get Morgan, didn't have time to go test. Open wheel trailer pulled behind a, a box van. We go up there, and we qualified third. 200 laps into the race, we're running second. And you remember that little bitty opening in the inside wall on the front stretch just wide enough to walk through? Yeah. Well, coming off four, about 200 laps into the race, we cut a left rear tire down, and Morgan caught the opening of that wall. And you remember I talked about how light this car was? It looked like a can opener opened it up, destroyed that car. Do you, do you know that uh... – I had one at Bristol 
that. Ronnie Silver, a, a racer just like yourself, built, and he said this car is going to be the fastest short track car. You're now ever this drove. one wasn't quite tore up as that as bad as that one. You could at least tell the front from the rear. Yeah, that, that was the same thing. I caught the wrong part of the wall, yeah. and and the car just light blew up. light cars are not good when it comes to that standpoint. So here we are now, one car destroyed. Me and another employee get back, regroup. Bobby, what do you want to do now? I said, you know, Morgan runs good about anywhere. I said, what do you think about let's take the summer and let's just build a good intermediate speedway car and let's run Morgan whatever races you want to run out of your own pocket. So over the summer of 85, we built this speedway car and we went to Darlington. We qualified We qualified in the top 15 and blew up. Mm-hmm. We go to the Charlotte the the 500 in in the fall and i think we finished seventh or eighth we get ready to go to atlanta this is where the bernstein deal kicks in so kenny bernstein because of his drag racing and that winston spots her the drag racing series he was good friends with the people with ralph steve grays and all that bunch with winston and so he had come to Winston and said, look, I, 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 I'm going cup racing. I think Beetle was his inspiration. I got a sponsor with Quaker State. I got Buick support. I've got this driver named Joe Rutman. I just don't have anywhere to carry it. And, 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 and we're a few months away from the season. So Ralph Seagraves was a good friend with a guy that worked with Bobby Hawkins by the name of Clyde Brookshire. He called Clyde and said, you think Bobby would entertain doing a sponsor uh, partnership with, with Bernstein? We'll see. So they actually formed a partnership. This was right before we're getting ready to go to run the last race of the year at Atlanta. Well, it didn't take long to realize Bobby Hawkins was an amazing businessman. Kenny Bernstein was an amazing businessman. But their theories was so opposite, it was never going to work. So about three days before going to Atlanta, Bernstein bought Bobby Hawkins completely out. Mm -hmm. But what was cool, Michael is myself and that one employee, the only way Bobby agreed to do this deal, Kenny had to keep me and that employee employed for a minimum of one year. And Kenny agreed to it. We go to Atlanta, and we ended up finishing fifth down there. And actually, even though it was still under the Bobby Hawkins banner, Bernstein owned the car. So we come back. we get we got to get ready to run this full season sponsorship. This is really the first time that I'm going to be with a team that's got a full sponsorship other than that little time with Blue Max Racing. Well, Bernstein had kind of seen that I was the guy in charge and that handled everything. So he put me in charge of getting people hired, getting parts ordered, machines ordered, cars built. But the one task he put me on You've got to find us the crew chief, which didn't offend me. I'd only been in the sport five years, and the closest I'd been to Victory Lane was walking by it on Pitt Road. So throughout the month of December and January, I worked night and day and got people hired, got equipment bought. We get cars built. I even booked all the hotels and air travel for the first few races. And Kenny would come back every couple of weeks, get a little update, get a little update, and by the time the second week of January, he comes to town, and where are we at? I said, I think I got everybody hired. You know, this, this, I, we've got the two Daytona cars are ready to go test in two weeks. Richmond cars look in pretty good shape. We've got a couple more chassis in the making. I think we got everything in place, but I said, Kenny, 
I cannot find a crew chief. I have done everything but run around town with a check hanging out of my teeth. And because of where we're located, I talked to Gary Nelson, Dale Inman, Herb Nab. I mean, I wasn't, I was trying to find the best of the best, but nobody would move to Greenville. He said, let's go to lunch. So we went to lunch and he says, I know why you hadn't been able to find a crew chief. I went, you mind filling me in? I'd <laughs> sure busy. like to know. He said, because I got the guy sitting right across from me. Me? He said, you can do this. He said, I've watched you for the last two and a half months. You've handled everything. He right. said, I watched you Atlanta make the calls on that pit box with no help at all. We finished fifth. He said, you can do this. And, you know, n- no, it was so hard to leave Kenny in 91, Michael, but I even still talk to Kenny about once every three or four months today because no matter where I go or what I accomplish, it was that man walking out on that very end of that thinnest limb on that tree and took a big chance, and I'll always be indebted to him. At a lunch in Greenville, South Carolina. At a little diner. <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. And and um, it's funny, I saw Gary Nelson yesterday. You just mentioned his mm-hmm. name. And I have a funny a memory of Kenny Bernstein. So he was he was a, a fitness guy, you know. He liked oh, yeah. to work out. And I, along about eighty eight or nine, when, when in this era we're talking, uh, I lived at a place uh, called Davidson Landing in Davidson, mm-hmm. North Carolina. And so one morning I was late. Imagine that, and my windows were fogged up, and I had just enough of a little hole I could see out my window. And I came up to the stop, like not it wasn't really a stop sign, just merging out of my uh, condo building onto the main road. And when when I realized what happened, I had Kenny Bernstein on the hood of my Pontiac Grand Prix. Because he had a place there. He had yeah. a place there, yeah. and he was walking in his – and it was cold. And he was walking in these, this, these tight little outfit, <laughs> and, and he had a headband around his head. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he was not happy with me. He landed on the hood, which I wouldn't did have he know? Did he know it was you? Well – he didn't until he looked right through that little <laughs> hole in the, where there wasn't any frost on the windshield. And I, I was sitting there, and he looked me in the eye, and he shook his head and pointed his finger at me. And that, that was my Kenny Bernstein uh, funny story about him. So you went from Bernstein, and you said it was hard, but the, the step to Robert Yates Racing and the, the, the bonds that you forged there, I mean, that, that had to be as good as it got with you and Robert and, and Doug and, and Davey and Ernie. Yeah. Those were crazy special times, and that was the most feared car in, in the garage area. Yeah. You know, I, I talked about the decision in 2000 to make the move from a crew chief to the broadcast analyst. Uh, definitely the decision to move leave Kenny Bernstein and go to Robert Yates was hard. And I'm not too ashamed today to admit, you know, Robert and Davey especially – had been working on me hard about coming over there. And, I mean, Davey always told me, just come help me get this thing pointed. We will wear them out. And actually, at Phoenix, at the end of the 1990 season, I shook Robert Yates' hand right up there in the 28 hauler in the garage area at Phoenix. And within a week, I got cold feet. Because I guess it was not apprehension to go to Robert Yates. It's Kenny Bernstein had given me this chance. Mm-hmm. And he had entrusted that race team with me for all those years. And I almost kind of felt like it was part of my team, too, because I was there when it was just two employees, no cars, no nothing. And, and we built it into an organization that had won a few races. Yeah. So I had to call Robert. And I said, Robert, you're probably going to hate me. But I, I said, I can't do it. 
And I explained why. And he said, Larry, I totally respect that. He said, I have been, you know, indebted to people too, and I get it. So we went through the off-season of 1990. Brett Bodine now is driving the 26 car. And and we start the season off. And the thing about the 26 car, Michael, is we just never could get all the pieces all in place at once. We could get the cars driving good, driver doing a nice job, the engines would be weak. We'd get the engines going good, driver doing a nice job. Buick would make a change on the aero side of things, and it was like taking a knife to a gunfight. We just never could get all the pieces. And I just knew, staying there, that we could win a race here and there, as we had been doing, but there's we were never going to get to a championship effort. So we start the 90 season off. We had a horrible Daytona Speed Weeks. But we go to Atlanta about the third, fourth race of the year, set on the outside of the front row with Brett. 26 car we ran about 20 or 25 laps on sunday and the rains came in and and rained it out we had to go back on monday well in that first 20 or 25 laps davy had crashed jake elder was the crew chief and jake refused to fix the car even though robert yates the owner was saying we're fixing it jake said no we're loading it up so anyhow long story short monday we resumed the race 10 laps into it running second blew up and I That's just all you I was at the end of my end of my rope. So Linda and I and our two kids are driving home from Atlanta in our minivan. Linda and I didn't speak five words to each other. I wasn't mad at her. It's like I'm just thinking, what in the world? What am I gonna do? So we get home and I talked to Kenny Bernstein the whole time I worked for him. 365 days a year, Christmas, Thanksgiving included. It may have been a three-minute conversation, but that's just the way Kenny did business. So he was off drag racing, and I knew it didn't matter if we wrecked, if the engine blew up, if a wheel fell off or the car didn't drive good. It was always my fault. That was just Kenny. I was in charge, and it was I, he, I, was, he was, I was the guy who was looking for answers. So we got home, and I'm unloading the van. I told Linda, I said, I don't want to talk to anybody tonight. Whoever calls, I said, you know who I'm talking about more more than anybody. I'll call them tomorrow. I heard the phone ring. I'm unloading the van. Linda comes to the garage door and says, telephone. I looked at her like, really? She says, you might want to take this call. So I go, Larry, Robert Yates. He said, I know where you stand. You've told me, but he said, I'm making a crew chief change in the morning. And I just wanted to reach out to you one more time. I said, when and where do you want to meet? And we met at the Waffle House on Sunset Boulevard off I-77 and sat there to 4.30 in the morning. Just It wasn't that we were negotiating, just, just talking. talking. Yeah. And uh, Michael, I, first trip I made back there to the dyno room and saw an engine on the dyno and saw the numbers, I went, I've been wasting my whole damn career yeah. <laughs> chasing this mess. That's a special feeling, though, not not only that 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 Waffle House conversation, but the the friendship that you forged with Davy and the special things that y'all were able to do together. Because uh, I raced with Davy as a kid, and you know I, I felt like I was pretty good, and I felt like he was pretty good, but I didn't see anything like what the two of you yeah. and, or the three of you, Robert included, uh, I didn't see that coming to put him on the level that, that yeah. y'all were able to, and and certainly not discrediting. Davy, but but it's just that that's what NASCAR is about. It's about a team, and the team that y'all put together was special. Well, I I can't say from the beginning 
to the end of my career, I ever had a bad relationship. I mean, even people said Earnhardt and I didn't get along. We fussed and fought. Yeah, we had our share of disagreements, but I felt like I had a good relationship with every driver I worked with. But there was just something about the Davey relationship. And, you know, people linked it that we were both from Birmingham. I, I didn't even really know Davey. I mean, I Davey was just starting to race when I'd moved to the Carolinas there in 1980, 1981. Uh, we got to know each other. For some reason, it seemed like the entire 89 and 90 season, the 28 and the 26 were parked side by side in the garage area. And I couldn't count how many conversations just leaning up against the race car I'd have with Davey talking about right front springs and shock packages and all this. I always enjoyed our conversation. But it was funny because when I took the job, back then we had a lot more off weekends than what we have today. Yeah. There were two weeks off between Atlanta and the next race, Darlington. And so I go to work, and I, it's like I really want to go to the racetrack and test with Davey. Not that we need to test, but I want to get to the racetrack and just get to know each other. And, Michael, we went to Darlington and tested. And the first time he went out and ran and came in, and I undid the window net and looked down in that window net, and we talked. I knew right then, I said, this is going to be – I couldn't wait till lunchtime to find a payphone to call Linda and go, you have no idea. This is going to be really, really good. I just the connection right from the beginning. And then the big win in the Daytona 500, 1992. 1992, yeah. Uh, you know, it was one of those deals you knew anytime you went to Daytona or Talladega with – anytime you went any big track, but especially those two tracks that – if you just dotted your I's and crossed your T's, the only team that could beat you would be if you beat yourself. Uh, but things had kind of gotten off over there during the off season. We, you know, back then it was unlimited testing, and we must have been at Daytona two times in December, probably Talladega two or three times, and we just were not running well. And so, about a week and a half before time to go to Daytona for speed weeks, two cars. We had a, the, the older car, they ran in 91, and a brand-new car. We cut the bodies off of both of them. Robert and them went to work on some engine stuff, and we went to Talladega. I think we had the, the truck had to leave to go to Daytona on maybe Wednesday. Friday and Saturday, we were at Talladega testing, and Davey couldn't even do the test. He was out running the Copper Classic in Phoenix, so we got Red Farmer. And we had been there so much during the, the, the off season. I knew shortly into the first day, whether it was the engine, arrow, cow, whatever, we'd found what we needed. And it was tit for tat, which car to take. So... Here we go. This is typical Robert and Larry and Davey being contrarians. Back then, the way the practice schedule and rules were, you could do a lot of unique things. So right before... When you say unique. I'm fixing to tell you about unique. <laughs> so right before we got ready to go to Daytona, we're trying to decide which car we want to run in the 500, which car we want to run in the Clash. Well, collectively, we said, what would be the best test session you could have prior to the Daytona 500, the clash, the Sunday before. So we elected to unload one car to run the clash and, and also getting ready to, to qualify. You could back then. The rules just allowed it and the schedule and everything it, it else. it was unprecedented. Nobody... Yes, nobody else did it. People looked at us like we had two heads. So we, fin we took the new car, finished third in the clash, qualified 10th for 
the 500 on whatever day we qualified, Saturday or whatever, and everything was going great. Monday's practice was good. Tuesday was good. With about 15 minutes left to go in the Wednesday final practice before the dual races, somebody blew an engine down in one and two. Davey got in the oil and destroyed the car. Again, back then, NASCAR a little more liberal. I ran to Gary Nelson. I said, Gary, can we have five minutes with our backup car? He said, I'll give you three laps. Because it was right at the end of practice. I can still see that tailgate coming down with that 28. And Doug, with his leg hung over in it, warming it up as it came down the, the tailgate. We ran three laps. Had to start at the rear of the dual field. Uh, finished third. Put us on the third row for the 500. And won the race. I think we had one of the best cars, but this just goes to show you how hard drivers ran back then. No question, the cars to beat in that that race was Davey in the 28, Ernie Irvin in the 4, Sterling Marlin in the 22, and Bill Elliott in the 11. Well, all four of the knuckleheads got to racing for that $10,000 halfway money, and three of the four got taken out. We were the one that survived it yeah. over there on the backstretch. Those memories, I, I lived it. I think I was running second to y'all in that Daytona 500, and my engine blew up with just a couple of laps to go. Uh, let's fast forward the success, the fun. You get the call about Davey's uh, accident. What what was that like for you? Yeah, you know, every time you buckle a race car driver in a race car, whether it's for practice, qualifying a race, you, you know there's a risk. You know it, especially when they're your best friend. The last thing you expect is to be standing in a shop on a Monday afternoon working on the Pocono car. And I can still see the look on Robert Yates's face today. He came out the office door, and his, his face was as white as a ghost. And he says, he almost couldn't even speak. He said, I need to, need to talk to you. And, you know, Robert had an interesting way sometimes of coming across with stuff. And in his his remarked to me when we got in the office, Davey's in trouble. Well, Davey wasn't Allison, and he tended to say things sometimes that wasn't quite exactly appropriate. And, and my you were thought, probably thinking, we'll get him out of this. My thought was, well, what has he said now or what has he done? And, and Robert said he's crashed that helicopter, and it's not good. And I remember Robert and Carolyn and Linda and I, Felix Sabatis was good enough to loan us his plane, and they flew us to Birmingham. And, you know, Michael, they – you know, we were at the hospital there, and of course, on a Monday night, and Allison family's there. And, and Liz came out and asked me several times, you want to go back there and see him? And I pretty much knew he was not going to make it. And you know what? I, I didn't want to see him that way. I wanted to remember him, how I parted ways with him on Sunday night when he dropped us off in Charlotte. And he got on that plane and flew back to Birmingham. And, you know, if I thought I could go back there and make a difference in his recovery, well, yeah, I'd have run through the doors. But I just knew I didn't want to remember him laying there injured and tubes and wires and everything. I wanted to remember him as I saw him last on Sunday night. Yeah. Well, that was a tough time, I know, for all of us. Uh, and for the race team, obviously uh, left a huge void. But But – there was there was a guy that, that, that was able to not fill the void of your friend, Davey, but yeah. get behind that wheel and go, and you got Ernie Irvin. Yeah. You know, we we, we buried Davey that Thursday before Pocono, and, and Robert and I 
we made the executive decision not to go to Pocono. Just we knew Davey was going to be pretty pissed off because we didn't go. He probably looked down and said, "You weak dogs." But you know what? We didn't want to go there and try to prepare a race car with tears in our eyes and a driver have to deal with that. It wouldn't be fair to that driver. So we made the decision not to go. And I know we buried Davey Thursday morning in Hueytown, and all of the team. We went back to Robert's house like a family gathers after burying Certainly. a family member. And we made the decision to close the shop until Monday and just try to gather our thoughts. And by Monday, I mean, the hurt was still as hard as it was the week before, but we knew we had to move on. And, um, you know, we bounced around. Robbie Gordon drove the car. Yeah. Of all places, the next place we had to go was Talladega. But that was the next race, and and Robbie Gordon drove the car. And you know what? He wrecked on lap 15. It was almost a blessing. Let's, yeah, put, let's put the car in the hauler and go home. Right. We don't need to fix this thing. Lake Speed was good enough to drive it for us. But, yeah, uh, Ernie Irvin became available. And it didn't take me long to realize this This is going to be pretty darn sporty right it, here. It probably <laughs> reminded you when you looked through that window oh. net the first time when you had a conversation with Davey when you got Ernie in there and you were able to, to – to, to well, and things him. happened so fast. I mean, we had been to Darlington, which was the first race Ernie drove at the Southern 500, and we'd been there and tested with Lake. The car went to Darlington with Lake's seat in it because Ernie wasn't out of his contract, and we changed the seat in the race car there Friday morning after all the contract stuff. We ended up running fifth, I think, in the race, and I remember – that's when the back stretch and the front stretch was back to the old original way. We were pitting right in the middle of the back of the what's now the back stretch, the front stretch, and he was racing Earnhardt, and they came off four one time about halfway down the front stretch, and Ernie had Earnhardt's rear wheels picked completely up off the ground. He never said a word on the radio. We ended up finishing fifth, and at the gas pumps, I said, "Man, you." You had Earnhardt up off the ground. He said, did you see it? I tried to time it where it'd be right in front of y'all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was that was a, a special time. And then, of course, unfortunately, Ernie got hurt. And um, and I know that was another t- tough time in your life dealing with, with Ernie. And um, all that led you to – you got to tell me this uh, – that led you to be Dell Earnhardt's crew chief. Yeah. What, what was that like? Yeah, you, you know, what what led me to go there, Michael, it, it, again, such a tough, tough deal. To your point, you know, Ernie comes and starts driving the 28 car the latter part of 93. We win two races. Dominated Martinsville. Dominated Charlotte. Oh, my gosh, led all but six laps. Yeah. It just it was scary almost. And I couldn't wait to get the 94 season started. And, you know, we we won Atlanta. We won Richmond right out of the box. And, I mean, there was no question as this 94 season was going that it was going to be between the 3 and the 28, If unless somebody else broke out or we just completely fell off the map. No question. Three'd win one week, we'd win. And just the points, they were yarding everybody on points. And then August at Michigan, when you least expect something to happen, a practice session on eight, Saturday morning. 8 a.m. or 9 in the morning. Uh, yeah, yeah, just the last thing you expect. And, and we, it's the worst qualifying effort we had had all year long, and I think we'd qualified 14th. And that was pretty bad in my mind and in Ernie's mind. And I remember being at his motorhome on Friday night. We talked about this qualifying effort. And, you know, back then we didn't – 
there wasn't a big differential between qualifying and race packages. You know, you'd untape, maybe open the shocks up, not a lot. So I said, Ernie, I really get a feeling when we open this thing up, open the front end up, it's going to be way too tight. But I said, as loose as that thing was qualifying, let's just make a run in the morning and we'll adjust from there. So first run out, I said, let's make 10-lap run. And, you know, it wasn't bad, but I knew it wasn't where it needed to be. And Ernie was notorious. If you were, if you told him to run 10 laps, that's what Ernie Irving would do. And he'd run those 10 laps as hard as he could run. But if you told him to run 10 laps, he'd always go through one and two the 11th time, almost harder than the, the, the 10 times prior. And coming up off of twos when that right front let go and he hit that wall. And honestly, Michael... I want to just walk away. I mean, here, I lost my best friend in July of 93. We'd kind of rebuilt this 28 car back to a winning championship contender, and it's gone again. And, you know, we it's finally determined Ernie is going to survive. Ernie is going to come back in 96. 95 season was a bit of a bit of a trying. Dale Jarrett came and drive the 28 car. We did win a race at Pocono. And it was nobody's fault. I think I look back, and, and, and we won Pocono two weeks after finally everything kind of came to a head. It was my fault, and it was Dale Jarrett's fault both because I think I was copping the attitude with a little bit of chip on my shoulder. We won races and set on poles and led laps with Ernie. You just need to figure out how to drive this thing. And Dale Jarrett, being kind of mild and meek, says – I just need to figure out how to drive it. Well, that was a highway to nowhere. And when we finally both realized, just tell me what this car's doing, and self, you need to get off the Ernie Irvin kick for the time being and work on this race car, we started running good. And then we won Pocono, and, and Robert decided to start the second team. Mm-hmm. And he put the burden on me of, you're still going to be the crew chief for the 28, but you've got to handle this 88 car too. You've got to look shepherd it as well, hire the crew chief, whatever. And, you know, 96 Ernie comes back, and Dale Jarrett was actually a championship contender. I think collectively the two cars won six races. I think Dale won four, including the Daytona 500, won a couple with Ernie. But, Michael, I was just – Wilkesboro with a patch on his eye. Well, he didn't win it. That's when he came back and ran with wow. a patch on his well, eye. He outran most people. Oh, yeah. There was a lot of drivers was uncomfortable with his patch on his <laughs> eyes because they knew he was still just as good as they well, were with was, a patch. He was my friend. We were friends, and I wasn't uncomfortable with it, but I, I was amazed by it. Like, how oh. do you run? How do you do that? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And that's back. That was his first race back. He ran three races at the end of 95 in the 88 car. And that's back, I think, 40, 45 cars, yeah. maybe more. Yeah. I mean, he had to qualify for that race. And and he, he went out there and qualified in the top ten with a patch on his eye. Damnedest thing I ever saw. I, but, didn't, I didn't see that coming. And but then, 96 just, it mentally spent me out. You know, here we built this second team. I still, I think, was mentally spent out from the Davey deal, the Ernie crash. Mentally and physically, toward the tail of 96, I almost just didn't even enjoy it anymore. Yeah. And as I started feeling that way, probably the greatest race car driver ever said, come be my crew chief. Gave you a call, eh? And uh, it was tough. You know, Robert Yates, he was like a dad to me. Right. But I just needed a clean sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. I just needed a fresh start. And there, that was an opportunity to do that. So – 
now you're you're on the pit box for for Dale Earnhardt, and that that has to be the most wonderful feeling in the world. A, but B, he's he's got his ways. Larry's got. His. <laughs> That's putting him mildly. <laughs> help, help me, uh, Ford. We probably got a question that that will address this uh, from either Twitter or Reddit. Producer Ford's over in the corner. Um, what do you got about Dale Earnhardt on your your questions there? Well, yeah, it actually comes from one of our Twitter questions, and appreciate everybody for sending in their questions. This one comes from at Gordon Tornado, and he asks, how did you handle the pressure of big-time drivers like Dale Earnhardt? You know, honestly, whether it was Dale Earnhardt or whether it was Davey Allison or, you know, that's probably two of the Ernie Irvin biggest drivers, I I never really felt pressure. You know, people ask me about pressure my entire career, and 90% of my pressure was self-inflicted which probably I think sometimes I was even overbearing on myself. Uh, yeah, Dale was a challenge. There's yeah. no question. It didn't take me long to realize that. I remember I'd been up there at RCR not even two weeks, and um, they were a little bit intimidated by me coming in there. They, I think they felt like that, that I was going to come in and try to change everything, and I really that was not my goal. My goal was just to come there, see what they had, and try to make it better and, and try to get this three-car back winning some races and back to a championship form. And I remember Dale coming up there less than two weeks after I'd been there, and a couple of the guys had already kind of been giving me a hard time about some stuff. And I said, Dale, we went in my office, and I said, we need to talk about our, some testing. And there was a silence across the desk. He said, what are we going to test? I said, we're going to go try to get better. I've tested a lot. We never accomplished nothing testing. I knew right then this this mountain's going to be really, really vertical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you handle it and get to Daytona with him and, and win that race, that, that Daytona 500 that he had been racing for so long? To try to win. Well, I, Michael, honestly, I, I didn't know if I was going to survive to see the beginning of 1998. You know, the first race, obviously, of every year is the Daytona 500. So here we go to Daytona, 1997, my first race weekend with the three car. We ran pretty decent in the clash. We won the dual race, which, honestly, I think if you put him in a covered wagon, he's going to win the dual race. No doubt. And we had a very up-and-down day in the 500. Not a really good day on pit road, losing spots. Car just really wasn't what it needed to be. But you know Dale, somehow with 20 laps to go, that thing's out front leading. And I remember with about, I don't know, 16 or 18 laps to go, looking at Richard and going, what do you think? He went, been here way too many times. Not thinking yet. With about 10 or 12 laps to go, I totally realized what he was talking about. It was barrel rolling down the back <laughs> straightaway. Went windless. I mean, absolutely. You talking about being devastated and crushed? Here I go to Richard Childress Racing. I leave Robert Yates Racing, an organization that I'd won a ton of races with, had won six races in 96, and I go up here to the three, the greatest race car car driver ever, and I can't even find Victory Lane. How how did you get invited back for 98? Well, I I don't know because – you have no idea. I was being threatened by fans that I'd been sent up there to sabotage Dale Earnhardt's career, that Ford had planted me there to sabotage Chevrolet. You have no idea. Oh, wow. I, cu- I couldn't even wear my uniform to the track 
or away from the track. I had to be this, in street clothes. Larry McReynolds, could you imagine what it would be like today with Twitter? Like you <laughs> oh, might, no. You might have already been shot. No. But <laughs> spin it ahead. February 17th, 1998, I could have run for president and probably got some votes. <laughs> getting, the, getting that win that day and then seeing the car come down pit road with all of those fan, all those crew guys out like they were just they were fans. They were so thankful to How did that make you feel? See Michael, that is a blur. I did not I didn't even realize that it happened. Just everything that had went on there We'd had an amazing speed weeks. We'd had some engine trouble on Saturday. Had to put a fresh engine in Sunday morning. I mean, just dominated that race. And honestly, from the time that car took the checkered flag till well on into the night, it's it's a blur. How about that? I mean, I do remember being in victory lane, and it's one of those moments I'll really never, ever forget. You know, as we documented earlier, I was fortunate that I was had won at 92 with Davey. And so this was my second trip, which, as you know, they're all special. There's not there's not one special than another when you win the Daytona 500. You can attest to that. But I remember after kind of some of the hoopla settled down in Victory Lane, taking a step back and just kind of watching Dale and Teresa Earnhardt and watching Richard and Judy Childress. Because remember, it was their first time, too. And they're just basking it's in It's like watching kids open your presents on Christmas morning. Yes, it's definitely. a moment I will never forget. But I remember going through the Victory Lane stuff and going to the Unical suite and going to Bill Jr.'s suite and having the toast and then going down on the, 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 the pit road with the car wash of media, Dale and Richard and I. And then you go back to the garage and the guys are – about done with inspection they're putting it together and i remember it was it was raining so hard and we pushed that car up in that little trailer about midnight the one that's going to take it to the to the daytona usa and i remember walking to the motor coach and i was by myself Linda and the kids were not down there and i think when it finally resonated is when i walked up in that motorhome and soaking wet sat down there on the driver's seat to take my shoes off and i stopped halfway through and i went son of a bitch we just won the Daytona 500. That's yeah. when I think With it finally, finally resonated that this had really happened. Yeah. I know you uh, You went to see my documentary with me, and um, my emotions around the Daytona 500 are certainly much much different than most. Um, I, I, uh, I, I, I just wonder if you could put into words what what that loss meant to, to you and what, what, what you – remember about that day when when Dale died in 01 yeah I mean a very interesting weekend and day Michael as you well know you know it's it's my first time in the broadcast booth with Fox uh up there with your brother and Mike Joy and you know Daryl and I even though both of us had done a little broadcast we we still were we still had the yellow were, stripe we were rookies you 100% were race car guys you weren't TV guys and how could you as your documentary well documented how could you make a storyline unfold as it was unfolding i i mean you know, I remember Dale Earnhardt saying before the race, I think he maybe told Matt Yoakum, you're going to see something on Fox today you've never seen before. Little did we know what we were going to eventually see. Great race, a lot of storylines. Daryl calling you the final lap and watching this happen in, in turn four. And, you know, it didn't look that bad. And 
I figured that he was going to get out of that car. He was going to be mad at somebody, not sure who it was going to be. How well does Schrader say that? Yeah. He'll be pissed off. Yeah. But I remember Michael watching him, and I think I even said this on the broadcast, and I think I even said it when they interviewed me for your documentary, that watching him behind you and Dale, Dale Jr., it was something different. It was almost like a bear protecting his cubs. It was a Dale Earnhardt I'd never witnessed before, and I'm not saying he was doing anything wrong. It just was different looking. And I think for probably the only time in his career of driving a race car, he was going to be okay running third. Yeah, He was going to be okay. And I remember when I saw the panic break out after Schrader had went to the car, that was not a good sign, red flag. Then when I saw the ambulance leaving, and never stopped at the infield care center, and was there was no sense of urgency. Second red flag. And I walked to the airport because I was on a commercial flight, and the whole way over there, it's not good. I, I had no idea, but I just all the things I had watched, I just knew that this was not good. And then when I got to the airport, our producer at that time was Neil Goldberg, and he had called and said Dale did not make it. And, you know, Michael, I guess when you go through what I went through with Davey, what I went through with Butch Lindley. And Ernie. And Ernie. And Dale, even at 60 years old, I've got some close friends, but it's almost got me with my guard up that I'm almost clo- I'm almost hesitant to get close to anybody because of all these things that's happened. It's just a crazy life. The documentary people say that if it weren't true, you wouldn't believe it. First no of way. All. And They'd then, say this has to be some kind of Hollywood movie. Yeah, and then secondarily, you know, what what you said, you were getting all these signs, and I was not getting any signs. Yeah. I just was you waiting. You were waiting on him. I was waiting on Dale to come give me that hug uh, in Victory Lane that that I, that I never got. But um, I, uh, that's a tough tough day for me and a tough day for a tough lot of – Tough day for the sport. Yeah, and, and, it's, and just think about Dale Jr. and, and the family um, – it just isn't any way to, isn't any way to make that all seem right. No. Other than unless, un, unless you believe in you know going to heaven and believing that when you leave here, uh, in the blink of an eye you're in the presence of the Lord. And that's how I stay sane. I think because I believe that about Dale. A lot of people didn't know the soft side of Dale, no. who would pull over and maybe fix a guy's flat tire, help a guy fix his flat tire, or or, or just the kind gentleman that he was. It's funny to say, right? The kind gentleman that Dale was and. I just believe that when he saw that wall coming, he said, forgive me, Lord. And next thing you know, he's sitting in heaven. That's that. That's how I make that all make sense. And I guess it, it, who would have ever believed Michael? I mean, there's no question. He, he was the Elvis Presley of NASCAR. And here we are, 18 and a half years, closing in on 19. We go back to Daytona in February of him being gone. And the sport just is still different. You know, but as I the analogy I use a lot of times with fans, you know, when when Elvis Presley did pass away, rock and roll music it changed. It didn't stop. It kept going. It kept going, but it changed. Yeah. And you know what? We didn't stop. We were right at Rockingham just a few days later, as you well know. But but it changed, and it 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 has it has changed for good all time with him being gone. Yeah. Well, it's pretty deep stuff what you've been through. And before we wrap up. Uh, just um, thank you for, for spending time with me. And secondly, uh, I, I have to get your 
championship predictions for for the weekend. We're heading to Miami. It's going to be a championship weekend. The, the the three battles, the trucks, the the Xfinity and the Cup, to me are are wide open. I, I don't really see a distinct advantage. No. Someone was breaking down the trucks this morning, and they said, "Well, it's going to be either be Moffitt, Chastain, Crafton, uh, or Friesen." I'm like. That's, All right. that's the four. <laughs> that, 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 that's right. But that was how they ranked them. And I said, well, that's not true. I'm freezing is first, not last to me. Like, And the same with Xfinity. You know, we had big three all year long, and Algar now joined them. And I think maybe my favorites win the Xfinity and then Cup. It's just crazy wide open. Denny, obviously, is is probably my favorite mm-hmm. that I think can win the thing. But how are you going to count out Harvick, even though it's one on three? Yeah. What do yeah. you see? Yeah, I mean, this is the sixth year of this format, and and not to dilute or take away from the championship for the first four years, or to take away from anybody this year that that made the playoffs, whether it was Chase Elliott, Logano, Keselowski, whoever. But this is the stoutest championship four we've ever had. I mean, this group, Michael, they account for 21 wins this year. And if honestly, if you look at outside of maybe overall wins by each driver, if you look at their top fives and top tens, they almost lay all, all the way across the top of each other. It's, do you, do you, it's unbelievable. Do you think Harvick is toe to toe? Like he is he is he the 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 fourth of your final four, or is he one of your favorites? He he definitely would be one of my favorites, but I'm not sure Kevin is the guy that I'm actually picking. I honestly believe when I look at this group that we could take one of your helmets and throw the four numbers in and draw one out and probably do a better job than all this analogy. Yeah. But, you know, I've been riding the Denny Hamlin bandwagon the entire playoffs for the most part. I mean, the run he started on them in the summer and just to watch him in these playoffs – to, to get the two wins, I think six top five finishes. But I've got to say, there was something last night, today, I've all of a sudden tipped that scale back toward Martin Trex Jr. just yeah. a little bit. I, I, I And I can't sit here and tell you why. Uh, who would ever believe we'd be saying Kyle Busch may be the weak link in the chain? <laughs> I never thought I'd see the day. But I just don't think – remember, stats – Everything, throw them out the window. Forget it. We're going to a track we only go to once a year. We've never been there with this aero situation that we're going to be racing there. It's a new tire. And there's four guys. You know, people ask me what I think about Joe Gibbs having three of the four. Honestly, when they drop that green flag on Sunday, unless the announcers talk about the three Joe Gibbs cars, as much as those three, how competitive they are, how much they all want to win, and how much they all want to win a championship, especially Denny Hamlin, I don't think you'll ever realize those three guys are teammates. I don't think they'll just wreck each other, but I don't think you'll ever realize they're teammates. No, it's going to be a great weekend. Appreciate you helping me tee it up, and thanks for coming by Waltrip Unfiltered and uh, being my guest today. How do you like my you've done You've done a lot with the place. Yeah, I'm pretty impressed. I've really fixed up. <laughs> Producer Ford over there, he's always on the scene. Appreciate your help today, too, buddy. Oh, yeah, man. We've been pretty busy. We had a little grid walk we had earlier yeah. uh, today. It should be coming out digital pretty soon. I had to I had to warm up with my grid walk today. I'm I getting saw ready that. for Daytona. I saw that. <laughs> yeah, less than 100 days till the Daytona 500 on Fox. <laughs> you're you're going to start that. As soon as that checkered flag waves this Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Wow, was that a lot of fun. So much information. I love those stories. So many of those tales that Larry was sharing with us. 
mirrored my path to NASCAR. So I really enjoy this podcast. I love getting to know these personalities better. I got to tell you, I feel like part two of Larry McReynolds might be in order. So much more information about his TV career, his work here at Fox, and his son Brandon trying to make it as a racer. But uh, that's all the time we had today. And uh, next week, it's all about breaking down what happened down in Homestead, Miami for the NASCAR championships. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week. We're going to have a lot of fun then too. Thank you.